Good morning, I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. It's Saturday, October 9th, 2021. This is the Congregation of Prayer, a guide for daily meditation and prayer around God's Word. Uh, this is prepared for our congregation and school so that uh, we all study God's Word together, uh, whether we do it in person or online here, so in person in the school, online here, or you do it in your own home, led you know, by husband and wife or parents uh, with their children. Um, that way, that we're all being built up and strengthened by the same Word, um, and then that will also help guide our conversation when we do gather in person or when we interact with each other or with our neighbors. <clears throat> All right, so what we do on Saturday for the Congregation of Prayer uh, was continue with the regular things that we've been working to commit to memory, um, but as well we look at tomorrow's Old Testament and Epistle reading, uh, most often because I'm preaching from the Gospel text. That way um, you have an opportunity to do some further consideration of those readings as well, and maybe even see how they interact or intersect with the themes of the Gospel text. All right, so we'll be doing that today. We begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, let's pray our uh, memory verse for the day, or for the week, I should say. By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans 3, verse 20. Pray the psalm. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. All right. Um, I realize that... I forgot to change my calendar here in front of me. (laughs) There we go. I have a very nice, big calendar since I'm kind of blind and you can't see it because it gets washed out but there you go all right make sure I can see when we have commemorations coming up Um, we don't have one today good all right so uh, what we'd like to do on Saturday is hear a meditation on the psalm we've been praying it all week Um, I've given you a few ideas as we've gone through the week as things to be attentive to Uh, and now hear a meditation from uh, Patrick Henry Reardon on the text among the Psalms of Ascent, remember those are the Psalms for, um, for Passiontide, for Palm Sunday, chanted by Israel's pilgrims as they climbed the final steps up Mount Zion on their pilgrimage to the temple, Psalm 126, Hebrew 127, is the only one ascribed to Solomon. 
All right, and we've been studying Solomon in our daily readings. Good. The latter being the Bible's preeminent wise man, this detail may serve to direct our attention to certain wisdom themes in the psalm. And in truth, these are readily discerned. Most particularly, there is the theme of the wise householder. All right, and we've talked about that uh, through the week. A man did not normally make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem alone, but in the company of his family. For example, see Luke 2.41, Jesus and his family at the temple. Indeed, this customary pilgrimage was a significant way of giving a godly identity to a man's family. It was itself an exercise of edification. This word taken in its etymological sense of building or constructing an edifice. Right? So going to church is edification, building up a, uh, an edifice, right? Building. An important purpose of the pilgrimage was that of, quote, building the house, the latter term understood as home or household. Like everything else a family does together, the regular pilgrimage was an exercise in house building. In fact, this is a psalm about the proper maintenance of a household, and by extension, the city. Any simple reading of, say, Proverbs will show that these preoccupations very much constitute a wisdom theme. Now, the message of Psalm 126 is that all human effort directed towards such wise pursuits must be founded on a firm trust in God's grace and assistance. Thus, our psalm begins, unless the Lord should build the house, Hebrew, bayit, and Greek, oikos, in vain have the builders toiled. Unless the Lord should guard the city, in vain did the guardians keep watch. In our present state, these tasks, construction and vigilance, are matters of great toil, of course, and frequently of frustration and sadness, because we are children of fallen Adam, who discovered his daily labor impeded by thistle and thorn. Thus, our psalm addresses those who eat the bread of grief, that is to say ourselves, descendants of that man to whom the Lord said, in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, Genesis 3.19. We are heirs of that Eve to whom it was declared, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception in pain you shall bring forth children, Genesis 3.16. No matter with how much discipline and industry we labor for our family's bread, The bread itself is always God's gift, a truth we acknowledge each day when we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Likewise, (coughs) the wearisome toil of the apostles fishing all night to no avail is followed by the sudden and unexpected catch at the Lord's bidding. Luke 5.5, John 21.3-6. No human effort can hope for, for much apart from the graciousness of God. It was important for the fishermen apostles to learn this truth deeply, for it would have special application to the ministry of the church. So not just the household, but the household of faith, right? Okay. The labor of evangelism, for instance, depends entirely on the grace of God, for it is the Lord who day by day adds to our number, such as are being saved. See Acts 2.47. The Lord added to their number day by day. The Apostle Paul thus described the ministry at Corinth. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Then, shifting his metaphor to the one used in our psalm, he went on to assert, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. Oikodome. 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 9. Then, our psalm, pushing the point still further, this is really incredible, think about this, 
pushing the point still further, reflects on the irony that one of the most important blessings of human housebuilding takes place in bed. It is in bed, after all, in the context of rest and sleep, that children are conceived. Thus, God's great gift, the gift of children, appears to have more to do with human rest than with human toil. Ever think about children that way? Have more to do with human rest than human toil? Hmm. So after speaking of the loss of sleep involved in keeping a night vigil over the city, the psalm goes on to say that without the Lord's assistance, in vain do you wake early, rising up after resting. You eat the bread, you that eat the bread of grief when he gives sleep to those he, who he loves. Behold, sons are the inheritance of the Lord, the reward of the fruit of the womb. There is no room for a planted parenthood, a planned parenthood in this psalm. There is no room for a planned parenthood in this psalm. Conceived in the context of rest, children are purely the gift of God. These are the arrows of a man's quiver, says our psalm, waxing ever bolder in poetic image. They will be his stay and support when he sits and deliberates with his neighbors in the gate of that city over which the Lord maintains his constant vigilance. This is what it means to construct a home. Right? And of course, the key is that unless the Lord builds the home, the labor labors in vain. Right? So it all ties together. It may seem like disparate themes, but you hear how um, Father Reardon actually does, I think, a terrific job in, in demonstrating how, uh, whether it's rest, sleep, children, homes, watchmen, um, that these are all bound together and they're all by the Lord's giving. All right, our Old Testament tomorrow is a famous passage from Genesis 28. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went to Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head. And he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the east and, and the, or excuse me, to the west and the east, to the north and the south, and in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. All right, a few thoughts here, um, and then I'll share uh, from Mon- Luther's monumental uh, lectures on Genesis. Uh, eight volumes on the book of Genesis, uh, brilliant lectures that he did over a span of about 10 years, the last 10 years of his life. Um, but before we do that, I just wanted to note a few things that he, we're not going to look at today. Um, the first was that the promise made in 13, 14, and 15 here, you'll note it's it's a re- repetition of the promise made to Abraham, your father, and to and to, to Isaac, right? So you have the same promise made to Abraham about um, the descendants being like the dust of the earth and spreading, and that by your offspring, by your seed, that's 
masculine intentionally, right? Jesus. Um, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then you also note here this last bit. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Um, I've often said that at the graveside. I mean, maybe not often, but I have said it before um, that you know that we actually have a little gate out here, and it says above it St. John's Cemetery, right? And there's no fence; it's just a gate, right? But it, that's what whoever erected that uh, fence. This is a common feature in cemeteries. It's not a fence. Excuse me, the gate is to confess that this is the gate of heaven, that we go into heaven by way of our death, by way of the cemetery, right? So it's kind of beautiful there. All right, and so maybe think about that when you go through that gate, is that you're entering into heaven with all those who rest awaiting the day of resurrection. Hmm. Um, so uh, what I wanted to share with you again was from Luther's lectures on Genesis. This is from, uh, what volume? Volume five, I remember the first eight volumes of Luther's works are these lectures. Um, he's going to talk about the ladder and the, the symbolism of the ladder. All right, so I'll just read a little section here. But this is Jacob's dream. A ladder has been placed on the earth, a ladder which touches heaven with its top. On it, the angels are ascending and descending, and the Lord himself is reclining on the top of the ladder and is speaking that promise to this third patriarch. Right? Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not speaking through a man. No, he himself is speaking, a fact which, as we have stated, should be carefully observed in the histories of the Father. Moreover, the latter is a picture or an image, as it were, that has to have a meaning. For the angels are spirits and fire, as we read in Psalm 104.4, who make us thy angel spirits and thy ministers of flaming fire. Therefore, they have no need of a ladder on which to ascend and descend. Much less does God himself have need of a ladder to recline on when he has to speak to Jacob, the heir of the promise. But the images and pictures suggested by the latter have been explained in various ways, and it is not worthwhile to gather and recount them all. All right, so then he talks about uh, Lyra's opinion, and then the Glossa Ordinaria's opinion, and Gregory's opinion as to what this is. All right, but listen to this. But because mention is made of this latter in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, we should rather look at that text. All right, so here, Luther is demonstrating scripture interprets scripture, right? You don't understand one passage of scripture, find um, other passages that pertain either directly or indirectly, all right? To best understand it. You can do that with specific words. You can do that with phrases, you know, like the breaking of the bread in Acts is not something other than the Lord's Supper. And you can see that from all the context that's used in Acts, for example. All right, but here, the latter. For there, that is in the Gospel of John, the Lord himself seems to interpret this picture. When Philip brings Nathanael to Christ, he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, John 1, 47. Here, as Augustine says, he reminds us of that ladder of Jacob, who is also called Israel. This is what uh, Christ says then in the next, a couple verses later, John 1, 50. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. And then he adds, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. I'll never forget when I took the Gospel of John uh, as a course, which required course at uh, a seminary, um, when we came to this passage, John 1, 51, and uh, it's clearly speaking of the cross. I said, uh, but it also is speaking of Jacob's ladder. And the professor's like, no, it's not. 
<laughs> and I pushed back pretty hard. Uh, I did not know that Luther had done the same thing, but at the time, uh, <laughs> it's like us angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. How is that not a picture of Jacob's ladder? But anyway, I think he came around too. Uh, we should believe and be content with this explanation of our Savior, for he has a better understanding than all other interpreters even though they agree properly in this point that this dream signified that infinite, inexpressible, and wondrous mystery of the incarnation of Christ, who was to descend from the patriarch Jacob, as God says, in your seed, etc. Therefore, he revealed to Jacob himself that he would be the father of Christ and that the Son of Man would be born from his seed. God did not speak this in vain. Indeed, he painted that picture of the latter to comfort and console Jacob in faith and in the future blessing, just as above. Genesis 22:18. He gave the pro- same promise to Abraham and Isaac in order that they might teach and transmit it to their descendants as certain and infallible and expect a savior from their own flesh. In this way, God strengthens Jacob, who like the useless trunk of a tree is wretched and afflicted in a foreign land. And by means of this new picture, he transfers to him all the blessings to assure him that he is this patriarch from whom the seed promised to Adam will come, right? So therefore, uh, by the way, so angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man is, he's saying is a picture of the incarnation, quoting from the church fathers. Uh, My professor suggested this is a picture of the cross, right? Um, Where the angels ministered, um, but then they forsook him um, at the cross. I think it can be both, by the way, but here we go. Therefore, Luther says, we must understand the angels in their proper meaning, as Christ calls them in John 1, 51, where he speaks of them as angels of God, that is, the blessed ones. They ascend and descend on Christ or upon Christ. The latter signifies the ascent and the descent that are made by means of the latter and by means of the rungs. If you remove the latter, it signifies nothing else than the ascent and descent. The angels, however, do not use a physical ladder or an imaginary one. Nevertheless, there is an ascent and descent that is an angelic ladder, so to speak. This is the principal meaning, just as Christ himself explains descent and ascent of the angels upon the Son of Man without a ladder. But, but, what is the ascent and descent? I reply that this is the very mystery that in one and the same person there is true God and man. Accordingly, the unity of the person fulfills this ministry, or excuse me, mystery. The unity of the person in Jesus fulfills this mystery. And we who believe fulfill the word of Christ. You will see the angels ascending and descending. For we believe in the one Lord, his only begotten Son, born of the Virgin Mary, true God and man. Right? So you see, heaven and earth is united in the person of Jesus. That's what he's saying. This mystery is so great, so grand, so inexpressible that the angels themselves cannot marvel at it enough, much less comprehend it. But as it is stated in 1 Peter 1.12, these are things into which angels long to look, for angels cannot rejoice and marvel enough at the inexpressible union and unity of the most diverse nacers, which they do not reach either by ascending or by descending. If they lift up their eyes, they see the incomprehensible majesty of God above them. If they look down, they see God and the divine majesty subjected to demons and to every creature. There's so much more. Um, it's so devotional, too, the way that he talks, Luther talks. All right. So he's suggesting that the latter indicates the union of Christ um, as both God and man together, which is interesting, right? 
Well, there's different ways you can talk about it. Um, I think some and many would see this as like the Christians can ascend um, into heaven upon this ladder. Well, okay, fine. Um, if by that, that ladder you, see, you mean the cross of Christ, which is our means of ascent, is through Jesus and Jesus alone. All right. So there's some on the uh, Old Testament text for tomorrow. It's a rich text. We could spend, uh, oh, we could spend months studying it, actually, I think. All right, and then we uh, consider our epistle for tomorrow, which is from Ephesians chapter 4. That you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who is in need. All right. Um, So the theme here is actually quite practical, but it's connected to your life as a baptized child of God, right? So the old man grows corrupt. Um, but be renewed by the spirit of your mind, which is namely the Holy Spirit given to you in baptism, uh, which then puts on the new man, who is Jesus, uh, created according to the likeness, or created according to God, um, who alone has true righteousness and holiness, right? So um, we talk about this in regards to the will and, and in regards to good works, that if I do anything good that is of God, it is not I who do these things, but Christ who is in me who does them. I cannot take any credit for them because my flesh wars against God, right? And so I, my will is opposed to God. But the will of Christ, that spirit who dwells in me by baptism, is the one who um, gives to me to do, to do good, to do that which is lovely and beautiful and true um, with peace and patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, etc. All right? Uh, that does not mean that the Christian is absolved. <laughs> well, they are absolved, forgiven, um, but absolved of being attentive to their their life, right? Uh, because the the new man, Christ, is always restraining the old man, um, and so that part of the life of the Christian is being attentive um, to their speech, to their conduct, and to their labor, right? Which he talks about here, so that. Um, they live according to Christ who is in them, right? Uh, can they do these things? No, but it is Christ who does these things in them. Uh, I've been thinking a little bit about practical sermons, because uh, I've heard that, not so much here, but I've heard that in the past, that we need sermons that are more relevant or practical. Um, I think, well, I mean, you can <laughs> be the judge. I, I make an intentional effort to preach very practically and uh, relevantly, uh, maybe to our contemporary setting, to the things that are happening around us, things that are happening within our families and in our church. Um, talk about uh, particular ways that the life of Christ can be manifest within our vocations of, of husband and wife, um, mother and father, citizen, worker, um, governor, employer, uh, hearer of God's word, preacher of God's word, etc. So very practical, I, I think according to the table of duties, according to God's word. But um, maybe too practical, right, for some. So on the other hand, I've heard the same criticism to say, well, pastor, don't talk about my life as a citizen in this world from God's word, um, because that's too political, and we don't need politics in church. 
Well, that's a problem, right? Because God's word itself actually gives you instruction of how to interact with not only one another in your home or in the congregation, but also in this world as, as citizens, right? Um, and of course, our context is a little bit different than the context of the Bible. So um, God's word needs to be applied rightly, law and gospel, properly divided um, in the way that we interact with, with our government, right? Which is, again, different than, say, um, the government of Roman Judea, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, we don't have a Caesar, for example. Although uh, I think we we sometimes secretly would want one. We want an overlord, someone we can blame for all our problems rather than take responsibility for ourselves, which is what our uh, form of uh, democratic republic gives us, but regardless. Um, so it gets too close to home is what I'm trying to say. You think about this. I mean, these words of Paul, they cut really close to home. Um, put away lying. Just stop lying. Stop living by lies. But speak the truth to his neighbor. Um, be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down in your mouth, right? Reconcile with your brother. Otherwise, you're giving place to the devil. Uh, you can read my article in The Sounder from this week on that topic, all right? And I'll publish it online here at some point. Um, let those who st stole steal no longer. Just stop it. <laughs> Seventh commandment, right? Stop it, but work. Working with your hands is good. That's what God made you for, right? Stop being lazy. Ooh, see, it's too close to home, right? Um, and so I, I have been thinking a little bit about that and maybe that's eh, the nature of our, um, preaching tomorrow. Um, we're going to, I'm going to interlace a little bit this epistle reading into, um, the gospel text for tomorrow, which has to do with the healing of the paralytic. Um, because Jesus seems to care about the whole person, not only about their spiritual estate, their, um, their relationship to God, but also their relationship to one another, the relationship in this world. Right, their identity, but also their capacity um, to live in this world. He's attentive to both, and equally so, uh, it seems. And actually, hmm, maybe this is the problem. Uh, this is where the sermon probably will conclude <laughs> once I get it uh, finished out, which is that um, forgiveness of sins is eminently practical. Forgiveness of sins is eminently practical. It ha having your sins forgiven by Jesus each week in divine service, privately, personally, um, from Christian to Christian or from the pastor as from God himself, however you've received forgiveness spoken in Jesus' name, that forgiveness has its way with the rest of the vocations in your life. Right? And so it is as eminently practical a sermon as you can get. But hopefully I can demonstrate that. We'll see. <laughs> like I said, it's not quite all come together yet, so still figuring out exactly how I want to present that for you. All right, very good. Oh, <laughs> I've just been talking about the text. I wanted to actually show you how this was used in our Lutheran confessions, uh, which is one of the things I'd like to do. I like to do with these texts is go see, is this used somewhere in the scriptures? It is um, used, or in Luther's, I should say, yeah, used elsewhere in the scriptures, used, say, in the church fathers or in Luther's works, uh, or used in our Lutheran confessions. In this case, this Ephesians text is quoted verbatim in the context of Article. Uh, 12 in the Apology to the Augsburg Confession, which is on penance or penitence. All right, so you remember in the Roman church, medieval Roman church, and even to this day, um, in a little bit different way, um, they have the doctrine of penance, which means that you make satisfaction for your sins, right? So it's not simply enough to confess your sins and to be forgiven, but you need to demonstrate your faith in that forgiveness through works of penance, right? It might be saying a, a number of Hail Marys and Our Fathers, maybe doing acts of charity, um, et cetera, 
right? Now we believe that um, that acts of penance or trying to reconcile with the one who you sinned against will come as a fruit of faith, right? Um, but it doesn't. It's not commanded. It's not obligated because that's to turn the gift into a work again. So, for example, um, I'm going to read a little section, then we're going to skip ahead so you can see how it's used. Good men can easily judge the great importance of preserving the true teaching about contrition and faith, the two parts of penitence, as we have discussed above. We have therefore concentrated on the explanation of these doctrines and have thus far written nothing about confession and satisfaction. All right, so that's that's what we're going to talk about now. For we also keep confession, especially because of absolution, which the Lord God, which the word is the word of God that the power of keys proclaims to individuals by divine authority. It would therefore be wicked to remove private absolution from the church. And those who despise private absolution understand neither the forgiveness of sins nor the power of the keys. All right, now this is a key. This is a key section in the Lutheran Confessions. That's one of my favorites um, because it answers uh, a criticism. People say, well, no, only Roman Catholics go to confession. Uh, not according to our own confessions. It actually, according to Melanchthon here in the Apology, I mean, he's quite explicit. He says, it would be wicked to remove private absolution from the church. Now, maybe you didn't catch it, but uh, you should. What was, what was the key change uh, that Melanchthon makes there? If you just go back one sentence, he says, we, keep, we also keep confession, private confession, especially because of absolution, which is the word of God that the power of the keys proclaims to individuals by divine authority. Right. So then he changes the name. He calls it then private, not confession, but private absolution. And those who despise private absolution understand neither the forgiveness of sins nor the power of the keys. All right, so the key there, um, and I've taken to doing this, is calling confession not confession, but calling it uh, private absolution. All right, and there people see, ah, I see what it's about. It's the gift. It's all about a gift, right? The gift of absolution. All right, so I wanted to make sure you heard that because that will set the uh, context for that which comes after. All right. As for the enumeration of sins in confession, we have said earlier that we do not believe that it is necessary by divine right that you, that you name all your sins. When someone objects that a judge must hear a case before pronouncing as a sentence, that is irrelevant because the ministry of absolution is the area of blessing or grace, not of judgment or law. Again, why do you confess? Not because of the law, but for the sake of the gospel, for the forgiveness of sins. The ministers of the church, therefore, have the command to forgive sins. They do not have the command to investigate secret sins. In addition, they absolve us of those which we do not remember. Therefore, absolution, which is the voice of the gospel, forgiving sins and consoling consciences, does not need an investigation. Right, And then um, he goes on to uh, criticize much of Rome's kind of justification of um, the enumeration of sins. All right, so I got to skip a long way forward because um, he's going through all the texts that Rome um, cited in the Confutation um, to dispute this article. All right, but here we want to talk about Ephesians four. Right, occasionally the fathers, this is paragraph one sixty eight. Occasionally the fathers take the word satisfaction from the public right and use it to denote the real mortification. 
So Augustine says, true satisfaction means cutting off the causes of sin that is mortifying and restraining the flesh, not to pay for eternal punishments, but to keep the flesh from alluring us to sin. Thus Gregory says about restitution that penitence is false if it does not satisfy those whose property we have taken. All right. Anyone who keeps on stealing is not really sorry that he has stolen or robbed, for he is still a thief and a robber as long as he unjustly holds on to another man's property. Civil restitution is necessary, as it is written, Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal. Right? Similarly, Chrysostom says, in the heart contrition, in the mouth confession, in the deed complete humility. This proves nothing against us. Good works ought to follow penitence. Right? I already mentioned that. And penitence ought not to be fraud, but an improvement of the total life. All right? So here, here's the point. Here's the point again. I'll just make it one more time. Is that um, for, for us, um, good works follow confession of sins, follow the forgiveness of sins, namely, not confession, forgiveness of sins. Because with forgiveness of sins comes the new man restored, the spirit of God at work in your heart. And that means that necessarily good works will follow, works of penitence, works of restitution, works um, of, you know, like uh, Zacchaeus, when he restored to those whom he had defrauded fourfold, right? That will come, but not by command, but by faith, all right? Now, that's the key. Because as soon as you say, I forgive you all your sins in the name of Jesus, now go and do this and that, what has happened to the forgiveness of sins in, in Christ Jesus? This is elsewhere in the Apology. Now the forgiveness of sins has become a work, a command, a law, right? It's been contractually, you're contractually obligated to go and do good works in order for the forgiveness of sins to be valid. So now you're being forgiven by your works, not by faith in Christ. You see, soon as you add works in any part, either before or after forgiveness of sins, you have turned forgiveness of sins into your work and not his gift. Okay, hopefully that makes sense. Um, so that's a proper way to understand good works here. And you can see that in uh, Augsburg Confession, Article 20, uh, if you need to see it there as well, and the Apology on Article 20. You can see it, um, where you talk about good works um, are horizontal, if you like. They're not, they're a, res- a response to, to faith, but they um, do not create faith, um, and nor are they a return to faith. Uh, that ends our meditation on the readings. Let's look at our Catechism for this week, the close of the commandments. What does God say about all these commandments? He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. What does this mean? God threatens to punish all who break these commandments, therefore we should fear his wrath and not do anything against them. But he promises grace and every blessing to all who keep these commandments. Therefore, we should also love and trust in him and gladly do what he commands. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, apart from you, we have no life or salvation. Therefore, you are a jealous God, desiring us to fear, love, and trust in you above all things. You punish children for the sin they share in and have committed from their fathers, that they might be brought to repentance and faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. You show love and mercy to those who love you and keep your commandments. Therefore, grant us true repentance and forgive us every sin against your holy law, that we might cheerfully love you and gladly do what you command. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, 
who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We pray, O God, because without you we are not able to please you, mercifully grant that your Holy Spirit may in all things direct and rule our hearts. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. On this Saturday, we pray for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. We pray in, uh, well, I should say we pray for the households of our church. There we go. Uh, especially for Dick and Corey, Dan, Stephen and Jackie, Ed and Bev, Scarlett, Norm and Donna, and Chelsea. We pray for those who are ill, receiving treatment or recovering, especially Tristan, Marcella, Kelsey, Ron, Amanda, Dan, John and Timothy, Janice, Sandy, Ken, Kathy, Mike, Joel, Norm and Sandy, our homebound Bev, David, Roy, Willis and Mickey, for the missions and mercy work of the church, Orphan Grain Train, also for a disdain of earthly things, and for the family and friends of Kay Winter who grieve her death. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right, let's sing our hymn one more time. Water, blood, and spirit crying. Sword on sheathing, 
spirit, life is breathing through the living, active word. Spirit, water, blood, entreating, working faith, and it's completing in the one horse doth defeating. Life has come with life for All right, so good to have you with us all here today for our Congregation of Prayer, Guide for Daily Meditation and Prayer Around God's Word. You can join us uh, tomorrow in person for divine service at 9.30. God willing, the stream will work. I don't know why it dropped out today, but, well, there it is. Thus, the internet woes continue <laughs> here and there. Um, also, Bible class after, Bible class in Sunday school afterwards. And uh, there will also be an open house tomorrow at the uh, Pars- Teacherage, I should say, Teacherage next door. Um, so you can go check that out and see all the great work that has been done there and the way that that home has been restored um, for our good use here and for the use of our um, two of our teachers, right? Husband and wife and their family that will be living there. All right, so see you tomorrow. Uh, and if not, Monday morning, Congregation of Prayer again, right, bright and early at nine o'clock. See you then.